Tonight we are continuing our study of the book of Genesis, and we are in the first chapter of Genesis. We covered the fourth day last time we were together. So tonight is the fifth day, and it is the fifth day that we're going to study. So we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 20. So right in the first page of most Bibles, after you get past the uh, opening uh, credits and the table of contents and those things, then you get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. And it says this, Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So we have today... Uh, a amazing study. And one of the great things about this study that we're going to look at tonight is, in fact, the fact uh, is we're going to see the animals of the, the sea and the birds of the air. And that's what we're going to look at. Now, about 200 years ago, a guy named William Paley, or Paley, depending upon who you are, who you talk to, came up with a illustration to show that life must be created. And he said, what if you were to go along the beach and find a watch? Now, you'll notice that I have a picture of a watch there, and it is on a wrist. At that, and the reason I know something about that watch is that it's my watch, and it's on my wrist. And I took a picture there of that watch, and, and that one watch is uh, obviously complex. It's a system that uh, works based upon springs that are driving the gears. The gears are driving uh, the uh, various indicators, the hands that tell you information that you need. Uh, now, this system requires uh, energy input. In other words, you've got to wind it. And then you've got to have a spring that releases slowly after time the, the and movements that you need for the watch to work. And so I don't think any of you would say uh, that if I came in here and I'll say, you might think that some engineer cut out all those parts, crafted it, and designed it to do like that. But I have a different theory for that watch. Millions of years ago, this watch just happened to have evolved on its own over time, amazingly. Just, just showed up one day. Now, you wouldn't buy that as a logical reason because you have some sense about you. You understand that this watch is quite complex. Now, this theory, the, the old watchmaker theory. If you have a watch, you got to have a watchmaker. That was Pally's argument. This theory was based upon what David Hume said. Now, 
I mean, David Hume criticized this theory. In 1779, he said, living systems only have the appearance of machines unless it can be proven that living systems are indeed machines at the molecular level, and he didn't know this, he didn't have any clear understanding of these things, indeed machines at the molecular level, then Pally's watchmaker argument is irrelevant. So for many years, people thought David Hume had an argument against William Paley's watchmaker argument. Uh, but there is a, a problem with the, that point of view because let's look at the watch, but let's also look at the, wit, the wrist itself. You know, my watch is on my wrist. The watch is certainly complex. It's intelligent in the sense that it was designed, it has functions, and it is, it is something that serves a purpose. But the, but the thing is, this watch is a simple open loop system, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, but it is just very basically, you get what you put into it. That's what happens with the watch. It, it's, it's sort of simple, even though it is complex. But what about the wrist? Now the wrist is a different system entirely. We don't think about it, but that wrist, my arm has a wrist, and you, you, if you have a wrist, you have one of these two, is a complex closed loop servo system. You have a lot going on in your wrist that's far more complicated than what's going on on my watch. And the wrist is more complex than the watch itself. For instance, uh, the wrist adapts to ambient conditions. I mean, literally, uh, if you have a situation where you get into hot temperature, you sweat and the skin perspires and it allows, just like it does everywhere else in the body, it allows for things to adapt. It also is able to react and adapt to conditions that are internal so that if it's cold, the, the blood vessels will constrict and conserve the precious blood and send it to the center of the body so that your body will keep warm even though your wrist is keeping cool. It fights off invaders. Literally, there are disease, uh, anti-disease elements and systems that within this wrist that carry information that is able to uh, be able to defeat pathogens and be able to protect it against diseases that might uh, be harming the cells in the wrist. It is a self-repairing mechanism. When one of the cells in this needs to be repaired, it repairs it. If a cell needs to be replaced, it replaces it. Now, the watch doesn't do that at all, not even close. That watch, if, if something goes wrong with that watch, what do I have to do with that watch? I've got to take it to somebody to repair it, right? I've got to go to somebody else. But the wrist is self-repairing in most cases. I broke my wrist one time in my life, and it was, I think, my right wrist, and uh, it had to repair itself over time. And guess what? It sure did over time. Now, modern science has revealed that even the simplest organisms are complex machines beyond our imagination. Science has refuted Hume and totally vindicated Paley. 
So Paley was, by scientific evidence, absolutely correct about his assumption. And he was more correct, in fact, because the cells in our bodies are far more complex than the simple watch that Paley mentioned. Sir Fred Hoyle in 1981 said this, the speculation of the origin of the species that was Darwin's work turned out to be wrong. It is ironic that the scientific facts throw Darwin out but leave Paley the ultimate winner. So while it was thought by Darwin that life was made up of a bunch of simple building block cells that make us, turns out that that's not true at all. Now, an open loop system is uh, one like you see here. It has an energy source, a mechanism, and a display. So we have here on my watch, the energy source is the spring, the mechanism is are the gears and the movements, and the display is, of course, the hands that give us a display. So that's an open loop system. The closed loop system is a little different. It has a situation where you have a desired, you want to find out something with your machine, so you actually program that machine to give you a desired effect. So it has, it adapts to situations so that you can get the effect you want. An example of this is that you have a desired temperature, let's say, in your room. So you program that to a sensor. That sensor is like a thermometer or something like that. It reads the temperature and then it activates at a certain datum or at a point that you'd put in there. And so it activates a mechanism that then goes around and, and, and in, in fact changes the environment and that gets put back into the sensor. That would be like an air conditioning system with a thermostat. That's a closed loop system, far more complex than the open loop watch, which simply is whatever you put in is what you get. Adaptive systems are even more complex because they include adaptive controllers that uh, can go and actually change the sensors, the mechanisms, and the datum as they need to in our program. So that's an even more complex machine. So let's think about evolution for a second because I know that people think that, and, and we've been taught in, in for over 100 years, scientists, scientists have said evolution is the way we came into being. But uh, there's some problems with evolution just as it is presented. For instance, self-organization violates the law of entropy, which is the second law of thermodynamics. So things tend to go from order to disorder. That's the natural way of things. But evolution goes the opposite direction. Oh, we get more advanced, we get more advanced, we get more advanced, even though everywhere else doesn't work that way. Complex system assemblies require all the subsystems to be functional for the system survival. That means that you do not have one system evolving without having the other system already in place. Evolution doesn't explain this. It doesn't explain how you can have all of these systems just show up. It, there's no way that it can. You can't have things half evolve. They have to evolve at the same time, 100% in order for the system to work. 
the air conditioner in our, our room today, would it evolve? Did it evolve into being? Will it work if you take out one of the parts, one of the systems? No, it has to have all of its systems on day one or it doesn't work as a system. Life is the same way. You look at this uh, model of a, a picture of an engine. Well, you've got a whole lot of systems there. Combustion is one, but you've got cooling fans and cooling systems that work, lubricating systems that work, uh, and uh, you have the drive shaft system that has to work as well, uh, and the electrical system that has to work. That's just in, a, in, a, in an engine. You take any of those systems out, that engine's going to fail. It's not going to succeed. You've got to have all the systems working for that machine to, to work over time. So if you look at the order of systems and machines and how things work, you have open loop systems like my watch, the closed loop systems, similar to, let's say, a thermostat, adaptive systems that can have, be more complex, self-modifying systems, which are even more complex, and you can even go to intelligent machines that are being developed even now. Intelligent machines can become things like self-modifying systems, self-programming systems, self-diagnostic systems. We've got too many of those on our cars today, don't we? <laughs> We've got plenty of those systems. Uh, our, our vehicles are increasingly getting more complex. Self-repairing systems. Now, that, that my car doesn't repair itself, though. Uh, well, I, I, we've got to the point of self-diagnostic systems with the cars, and that's about as far as we've gotten. The self-repairing system, I don't know. I don't look for that to come out anytime soon. Self-reproducing system. And I know my car doesn't reproduce itself, okay? It doesn't work. And I don't get one car together with another car and hope I get a baby car. It doesn't happen. Be nice, I guess but it hasn't happened yet. Well, I guess you could get transportation that way because people have been doing it with animals for years, right? And you get a horse and another horse and you get a baby horse, you know? You can certainly do that. So we haven't improved upon the horse on that part of transportation. Amino acids are one of the important building uh, blocks of life. Now, I'm not a chemist. I made terrible grades in chemistry as far as I was concerned. I didn't make... B's and A's even. But one thing about amino acids is that they form unique chains, uh, especially with each other, which makes them able to be truly building blocks in a very complex way. Now, the theory uh, that we evolved is basically that you have this prebiotic soup. And you had a primitive atmosphere. You had water, ammonia, methane, energy, UV, which is light, lightning, and at least all these inputs of energy into the system. So when you have all this, you just, they were all kind of mixed together. Some lightning bolt strikes, some light helps feed it, and it, suddenly you get amino acids. And, uh, there have been some experiments to try to come up with some amino acids. But 
the experiment that they did that came up with a very small sample of amino acids in which they input a whole bunch of things, it involved an experiment where they did it completely free of oxygen, which is not true of the real world and the real universe. And that is what I would call a system that was, uh, they rigged it to get what they needed. So no oxygen, you cannot have uh, oxygen in the process. So one of the things that's amazing about the cell is that the cell, when it deals with certain amino acids, it actually has a membrane that goes around the cell and it regulates the amount of water and oxygen that gets into the cell. So it has its own gateways that protect the amino acids. And in fact, when we think about the amino acids, we also learned that there's, there's different types and we'll learn about that in a minute. What about the cell for life? Because animals and uh, certainly need to have, uh, they, they are living things and they're built of these cells. So what is a cell? Well, it's, it's very miraculous and it's like a little city. So it, the code of life is DNA. DNA was discovered by Watson and Crick in 1953. It's, uh, it stands for deoxy acid. And there's another form of acid called ribonucleic acid, also, also known as uh, RNA. And in 1955, Sanger uh, was able to find the complete chemical structure of protein. Protein is produced uh, by DNA and, and it reverses itself to go to the, the protein, gets turned into DNA. So Francis Crick had this to say, an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense, the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. Of course, how else can he say anything else? It's so amazing. Michael Denton in 1986 said this, although the tiniest bacterial cells are incredibly small, each is in effect a veritable micro-miniaturized factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery made up of one 100 billion atoms, far more complicated than any machine built by man and absolutely without parallel in the non-living world. That's pretty amazing. The simple cell, is it really simple? Well, it has unparalleled complexity and adaptive design. It has a central memory bank. It has assembly plants and processing units. It has repackaging and shipping centers. Sounds pretty complex to me. It has robot machines or protein molecules that function to do certain things that require information and require it to be able to discern and sense what this is and that is, and, and it's quite amazing. 3,000 atoms each in each protein in a 3D configuration hundreds of thousands of spe specific types of these robot 
proteins. Elaborate communication systems with quality control and repair mechanisms. Now remember, we're just talking about one little cell that has these, this information. A model of the simple cell, if you were to create a model of the simple cell that's a thousand million times larger than an actual cell, each atom would be the size of a tennis ball. It would be 10 million million atoms. One, if you were to count them and, and put them at one per minute, it would take you 19 million years to build your model. So I'm going to put one in per minute. That is 19 million years. Over 10 miles in diameter would be the size of your model. So that's quite a big model, isn't it? So if we look at the cell, and you studied this in school to some degree, you probably remember that you have outside the cell the plasma uh, membrane. It has gateways for exchanges, and it has signal receptors. The cytoplasm is the, th the, 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 the stuff that's in the middle of it, the fluidish type material through which everything gets transported. And then the nucleus, which is the information center and the library of information that's in the cell. And then the nucleosis, which is, in fact, an automated factory producing, uh, it's, it's, it's actually got product manufacturing involved in the nucleosis so that they can actually be able to take information from the library and transport it to other things that they need to do. There are power plants in the cell called mitochondria, and these power plants are energy sources that are constantly activating the cell so it can do what it's doing. There is the Golgi apparatus, which involves processing, packaging, and shipping, and export uh, preparation for various functions of the cell. And you have various vesicles, which are used for storage, transport, and trash disposal. All of this is going on in this tiny little cell. So in the cell, there are automatic, automated factories, robot machines, hundreds of thousands of different types of these machines. Artificial languages and decoding systems are involved in these machines. Memory banks for information storage are in the cells. Elegant control systems regulating automated assembly of components, prefabrication and modular construction. Things are coordinated so that everything fits together just the way it's supposed to. Error, fail-safe, and proofreading devices for quality control. Sounds a lot like a factory to me. Now, there used to be active the Ford River Rouge plant in Dearborn, Michigan. Now, this was one of the most complex factories that there ever has been created. If you've ever been there or heard of it, you should realize that it was a marvel of human engineering. It took raw limestone, iron ore, coal uh, that went into one end, and they manufactured their own steel, glass, and paint in this factory. Pretty impressive. Its own automated engine manufacturing line and an assembly of mixed models, options, and colors. So they actually had different cars that could be coordinated on the assembly line to be different, but all came together on the assembly line. 
and new cars would exit the other end. So you got the raw materials going in, you got the cars coming out. Pretty amazing. But the human cell, the animal cells, are unequaled in any factory on earth. So it makes the Ford River Rouge plant look like a simpleton in comparison. Literally, the cell is that much more complex. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says. Isn't that true? The cell is capable. Now, I guarantee you the Ford River Rouge plant and every other plant in, in the history of human beings can't do this. The cell is capable of replicating its entire structure within a matter of a few hours. All cells derive from previous cells. So literally every cell that has ever existed that, that does exist came from other cells. We never made an artificial cell. You can't make it. It has to be from a previous cell. So you are talking about this complex thing being replicated on its own every three hours. That's pretty amazing. No, it is amazing. So evolution has three fallacies and things that are wrong with its logic. It violates the entropy law, the second law of thermodynamics. It violates the idea that critical system interdependencies are essential for survival. That means all these systems have to be working together all the time for this to have existed at all, let alone evolve. How can it evolve when it has to actually be there to start with? You have to have them all in place. It's sort of like I said before, the mousetrap doesn't evolve and it doesn't work unless you've got all the parts. You've got to have every part day one. And the, the, the cell and life uses digital languages. Literally, there's a digital code that's working all the time in life. And that is going to require somebody to have programmed it because I guarantee you it doesn't happen on its own. Shakespeare did not happen because of random movements of, of objects that were scratching something on, a, on, on the surface of the sand. It, it took a human mind to make Shakespeare's works and it takes something beyond that to make life. So what are digital codes and uh, what, the, what do they do? Well, digital codes require that they have an arbitrary but consistent definition. They have to have a meaning to the code. If they don't have a meaning for it, it doesn't make any sense. So when we assign something to be a digital code, we have to have its meaning, and that's called the semantics of it. We also know that digital codes are dependent upon their context, where it's found and, and in what way it's used. And digital codes absolutely prove that somebody designed it. You have to have an intelligence behind a digital code. So when we look at this chart here, order versus entropy, you'll notice that when things are ordered, you have several facts. You've got information, you've got signal, you've got things like music and sequence and design. All these things are part of order. 
But the, the entropy side, the chaos of it is, instead of information, you would have error. Instead of a signal, you have noise. Instead of music, you have a cacophony, just a bunch of random sounds. And sequences, you'll have randomness. And instead of design, you have chance. So that's the difference between order versus entropy. And yet, the world tries to tell us that entropy somehow was able to produce order when there's no evidence that ever happens, because it really doesn't, not to this degree by any stretch of the imagination. So what is the role of language? Well, think about the old North Church. You remember Paul Revere's ride, and the code was that if it's one if by land, two if by sea. That's to tell the patriots whether the British were coming by land or whether they were arriving by sea. Now, that's a very complex code because if they... Uh, the British could not have solved that code if they didn't have somebody to tell them what it meant. All they would have seen is the lanterns. They wouldn't have known what it meant because the best computer in the world couldn't have figured it out. And that's a very simple code. So the semantics of it is that if you had one lantern by land, it would tell one thing, and two, if by sea, would tell another. Now the syntax, the context was, it was in the old North Church. They knew to look at the Old North Church. That is where it is. So if you take the situation here, you've got the meaning of the code. You've got it where it's located and how it's placed. That's the syntax. And then coordinated planning, which is design, or was it random accident? Well, we know that they did it by design. They put that there by design because you have to, if you're going to have a code, you've got to have purpose to it. So digital information works the same way. You have DNA, which is the master blueprint of life. And then that gets transferred and copied into RNA, which is literally almost like a photocopy. And then translated in and carried to protein, proteins. And it is which are functioning machines, functional machines in the cell. And this is how we end up with the DNA being copied and, and, and it ends up being used to produce new cells. It's, all this is going on in a very complex way. So I told you about amino acids. Now, these are 20 amino acids that are vital for uh, life. And uh, some of them are nonpolar, which are going to be uh, non-soluble. That means they don't like water. And the others to the right are the ones that do like water. And they have to be carefully balanced in the cell so the cell knows how to properly protect them. Some of these protein machines that are made up of these amino acids, they literally have the water soluble, which are which like water, they are on the outside, and those that are, are going to be hydrophobic or against water are going to be protected on the inside. That had to be designed for this to happen to make these machines. We, again, are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's amazing. Now, let's think about some examples of life. And in this case, the dolphin or porpoise. Now, a thing about a porpoise is 
uh, and we can think about a lot of things about them, but let's think about the melon, which is this, this area right there, the blue on the front of the porpoise, which is the sonar of the dolphin. Now, this is an amazing function that the dolphin has. Uh, the dolphin's sonar system involves these equations, mathematical equations that have to be calculated and it reconciles the velocities of sound through different media like seawater, sound goes at a different speed than it does through its skin, through its acoustic lens, etc. So all the things that the water has to go through, the internal computation has to be calculated precisely so that the dolphin sonar will work. Otherwise, it would just be nonsense. Now, if you believe the dolphin just evolved on its own, how did that sonar evolve? Where is the trial and error? Because as Chuck Missler said, dead animals don't evolve. Okay? You, you, you have to live. And if you are evolving something, you have to have survived. And the dolphin needs that sonar to be able to function. The dolphin is dependent upon sonar echoes to find food, thus it's dependent upon a fully functional system, which is useless until it's fully functional. There's no trial and error. It either works or it doesn't work, and it doesn't live if it doesn't work. So the dolphin was designed. What about dinosaurs? And uh, did you know that when it talks about sea creatures there, it actually doesn't, some translations say whales, but that's a bad translation. The, it actually means sea monsters, which is just great sea creatures. And uh, I personally believe that sea monsters still exist today, not in the fanciful way that you see in the old uh, myth myths, but I do believe that some of these creatures look pretty extraordinary in 1977. Uh, in New Zealand, they actually, a, a Japanese trawler picked up this creature, which looks exactly like some sort of dinosaur type uh, underwater creature. It's 4,000 pounds, 32 feet long. They found it 900 feet below the surface of the sea, but they couldn't hold on to it in their boat and handle it, so they let it go after they took pictures of it. But this was documented in 1977, and I remember hearing about this 30 years ago, in fact. The Bible in Job 40 speaks about the great behemoth. It's been given different names, but I believe that he probably referred to uh, what would amount to dinosaurs. And in fact, if you think of looking at something like a giraffe, if you were to bury the giraffe skeleton in the ground and age it, you, it would look like a dinosaur skeleton. I mean, think about how tall the giraffe would be. Would a giraffe have to, would it even fit in this room? Probably, but it wouldn't get in very easily, would it? They're very tall creatures. So uh, the, the, the beauty of God making these sea creatures, and they still exist. Many of these creatures still exist today. And even the blue well is over 100 feet long. I mean, that's, that's a large living creature, don't you think? Let's think about birds for a second. Birds, they fly. We all know this. But if you know anything about aer aerodynamics and you know about engineering, you know that an airplane is highly engineered. You have to engineer an airplane. Well, a bird is highly engineered. For instance, 
it has lightweight, hollow bones in its skeleton. So it has to have this in order to fly. So there's conservation of weight so that the, the birds can fly. It has a fused furculum, which is the wishbone. It absorbs shock, and it also helps facilitate breathing. So that wishbone has a purpose. It's not just for us to have good luck for the turkey, but it's, it has a purpose for most birds. And it does these things to help it adapt and to live. It has egg laying, but they have to lay eggs outside its body so it can fly and they don't have to carry the extra weight of the babies. So they literally lay their eggs so that they don't have to be able to carry their young all the time. So their young can develop separately and they don't have to bear them like other creatures do. They have reproductive organs that only operate during breeding season. And, and then they atrophy and they reduce in size so that they have, guess what? Less weight so they can fly more efficiently. Now, that's pretty complex, don't you think? And that didn't happen by accident. How about their physiology and, and how their, their systems operate, the birds of the air? Well, they have a very fast metabolism, super fast metabolism. They have a high body temperature. If we had 104 to 108 degree temperature, we would go to the hospital probably. But they have that temperature almost constantly. They have lungs that are open at each end. And they have, uh, especially these birds that fly for long distances, they have the ability to breathe out. But when they breathe out, they're actually got extra air stored in other sacs that squeeze together and put air back into their system. So they're breathing when they're breathing out and they're breathing when they're breathing in. They're breathing both times. We don't do this. They have 450 breaths a minute compared to about 30 a minute for us. They have larger hearts for altitude. The birds that fly out at high altitude have larger hearts. And they beat 400 to 1,000 beats a minute. That's a lot of beats per minute compared to uh, an upper uh, level of maybe 160 per minute uh, for a lot of people when they're doing activities. Feathers. Well, the feathers are designed to be aerodynamic, but also to protect their bodies uh, and to conserve body heat or to release heat. And unlike the ailerons on an aircraft, which move in usually one direction, the flaps on an aircraft, they usually have servo motors. They move kind of like on a, on a little pivot and they go up and down, up and down. That's about what they do. And then they store away. These feathers move in three different directions, three dimensions, and they individually can be controlled by the bird. We haven't designed anything like that. And I like what one man said, the Wright brothers, for, for years people tried to fly like a bird and they made designs like birds and they couldn't fly because we're not birds. <laughs> and, and, and therefore the Wright brothers who made bicycles were probably smarter and, and, it, and they figured out they needed to find a different way of flying than just what the birds do. 
in terms of flapping their wings. So they were able to, to get their plane uh, lifted to a different way. How about the feet of a bird? Well, the birds have different feet, but they work for that bird for their environment. And it works and it's specifically designed for its unique lifestyle. Now, I know what people say. The evolutionist says, well, they've adapted over time. There were all these variety of birds, but they are the ones that survived. But again, I ask the question, how did all these variety of birds come into being if they weren't adapted to the environment? You see what I'm saying? They wouldn't have survived if they weren't adapted to the environment. So they didn't weed out all these millions of species because those species would have had to have had a perfect environment in which they were adapted already to have lived. They just would have never existed. It's a myth. Instead, these feet are all designed for their purpose. I mean, just look at the different types of birds with their different feet and you'll say, I, I can't believe how different they are. Let's look at the woodpecker. We've heard them before and they make a lot of noise, don't they? And for obvious reasons, we could say, look at their design. They have a strong beak. Well, that's pretty clear. They have special cartilage between the beak and the skull that softens the, and cushions the blow every time they peck on that uh, wood to get their uh, prey. They have tail feathers that move around and help them in balancing specifically for the purpose of being able to create holes and dig out the larva uh, from the worms. And they have toes that are unlike other birds that have three and one, you know, three forward and one back. They have two and two, which helps them to claw onto a vertical surface so that they can hold there much better with less strain. And they have an unusually long tongue. Now this tongue has barbs on it to hook and special glue that attaches to the worm, but does not attach it to the tongue. That's, that's a pretty good chemical uh, design, don't you think? Somebody had to design that chemical that just happened to be conveniently associated with the tongue of a woodpecker. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? It just blindly happened. But if you want to think about how long that tongue is, where in the world does the woodpecker store that tongue? Well, let's look at the European green woodpecker. The tongue goes down the throat, out the back of the neck, around the back of the skull, beneath the skin, and over the top, between the eyes, terminating just below the eye socket. That's pretty complex, and talk about efficient use of space. God is amazing. How about migration of birds? Still a mystery. We don't know how in the world these birds are able to go to the same place over time. So the example that I found on the internet was this, the golden plover. And how does the golden plover do what it does? Well, that's what it looks like. And the golden plover is a little bird, about 130 grams of weight to it. It, it actually flies every year from uh, Alaska to Hawaii. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Alaska and Hawaii, but there's no road there. 
There's no land in between. You've got to go all the way to Alaska, from Alaska by air to Hawaii. Now, that is about an 88-hour flight for that little bird. Can't stop. Can't rest. It's got to keep going. 100% of the flight time. And it has to have fuel. So on this chart, you'll see that the weight of the bird is over on the left side over here. So we got the weight of the bird over here. Okay. And then we have the flight time starting at zero hours going on up to about 100. And then we have the fuel consumption because as that bird burns energy, it's losing weight because it's got to burn the calories in order to have energy to fly. And even though they can breathe a lot, that only helps them to a certain degree. They've got to have the fuel. So when we think about this, there is a problem because that bird builds up its weight to 200 grams, but that's only enough fuel to go for about 72 hours. And yet it has to, it's an 88 hour flight. But you know what? The real flight plan is they make it. They make it all the way. And you know how they do it? They do it because they fly in formation. They have, they fly in a V and they take turns as the lead bird. And so they cut off that wind resistant because they know that vector angle because they're geniuses. They just know, they scientifically had a college where the golden plover had a flight engineering school and they, they taught their young. Now remember, you gotta fly in formation and you gotta understand the formula of aerodynamics in order to be able to get there on time. No, they didn't do any of that. They just do it because there is a God in heaven who made them that way so they can actually squeeze out the extra 16 hours or so to be able to make it that long a distance every year. And they go back to Alaska every year. Isn't that amazing? So we have the, the miracle, and I do call it a miracle of life. On the fifth day, God made the sea creatures. He made the birds. And we just looked at some small sampling of the marvels of these creatures. And when he said, it's good, it certainly is good, isn't it? Isn't it amazing what God has done? And he did this in such remarkable ways. Did you have some questions about this or some comments you wanted to make? Yeah. As they fly, they lose weight. That's correct. The less weight less energy it takes to get them. They, they are gaining in that respect. That's correct. And then how high does they go? You know? I don't know what their altitude is, but they have to be somewhat, I mean, high enough to where they, they can go where it's not going to hurt them. Yeah, a lot of migratory uh, birds do that. Why is that? That's true. You would also think the altitude, the higher they go, the threat less, I mean, 
Yeah, if they can fly higher, they also have less air pressure, too. So. <laughs> well, now, I'm, I, I believe they may have a sense on that, too. I, I do believe the animals know a little bit more about the weather than we do naturally, myself. Oh, yeah. And those hummingbirds, those little tiny creatures, they go from here to South America and back. That's amazing that those little things can fly and do what they do and navigate. Well, you know, in the fall, later, you hear geese flying. Yes. And then the next weather forecast, cold weather's coming. Yeah. There's a whole lot to learn from nature. I don't know. I don't know much about that bird other than what I told you. So uh, I'd have to do some research on that. I wouldn't imagine they live too long. But then again, crows live 30, 40 years. Some of the uh, ravens over there in England can live uh, even longer. Yeah, birds can live a long time, though. Bigger birds. Well, I think some of the parrots live 70 years and, in fact, outlive a couple generations sometimes when people buy them. Well, it is amazing, isn't it, what God has done? It's amazing what you can learn by just looking at nature and seeing his wonderful work. So the Lord is great and, and good, and we're so grateful to him because I'm glad I'm not in charge of it. Aren't you? I'm glad that we can enjoy life, but we know that he has designed this. And, and it's just ridiculous for anybody to suggest the slightest, in the slightest degree, that all these things just happened. I mean, it's foolish. That's why the Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're foolish. They may have lots of education, but they're educated fools. So they don't know what they're talking about.